Well, good morning, church, and welcome to our live stream from the very last time, Lord willing, from the offices. We are looking forward to being back in next week, bumping in, and man, we're one step closer to when we can all be together, and uh, we're, we're praying that the restrictions would ease up soon. Uh, we're praying for our government to have wisdom. I don't know if I'm going to be able to contain myself with the no singing thing. I may accidentally break out into song, just saying. Um, you may have to tackle me or something like that. Um, but uh, anyway, if you're new and uh, visiting our live stream for the first time, my name is Brennan, one of the pastors here. It's our pleasure for you to join us. We're actually nearly halfway through a series uh, on Colossians. And so if you have your Bible there, uh, you can open it up to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at three verses this morning. And that's Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through to 10. Friends, this is the word of the living God to you this morning. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning as we gather apart in our homes and as we open up your word, I'm mindful of my weakness and your strength. And Lord, we ask this morning that you would once again work an incredible miracle. Wherever we may be this morning, Lord, would you speak to us? And would you change us to know and love you more? And we pray this in the name of our matchless Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, I, I, as I was praying and considering how to begin this message, I thought I'd begin by sharing with you the story of Bernie Madoff. Now, you may be familiar with Bernie Madoff, or he may be someone unfamiliar to you. He is a U.S. Uh, investor, very, very famous investor. But in December of 2008, Bernie Madoff admitted to authorities that his business, Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, was operating fraudulently. His business, which had been operating for nearly 50 years, was actually a Ponzi scheme which is a scheme where people take people's money on the premise that they'll invest it, but actually keep it and pay returns out of the various people's money that they're actually holding. So the whole thing is actually a scam. Now, this came as a massive shock to the whole world because Bernie Madoff was one of the biggest names in investment. He was, in fact, the former non-executive chairman of the NASDAQ itself. And no one would have dreamed that this could be possible. 
It was estimated that some 80 billion Aussie dollars he defrauded people of. That's thousands and thousands and thousands of people. People who lost their entire retirement savings. Hospitals and charities that had to close as a result. And Bernie Madoff, a short time after his arrest, was sentenced to 150 years imprisonment. The thing that caught my eye, however, is uh, the following quote from Diana Henriques in her book, The Wizard of Lies, that retells the story and life of Bertie Madoff. She says the following. Time and time again, people caught Madoff in an obvious lie and gave him the benefit of the doubt. They didn't do this because he seemed so different from them, but because he seemed so much like them, only better. Smarter, more experienced, more confident, more in control. Because he was fundamentally human and seemed to live in the same world they did, they could believe that somehow it would all work out and that they could ignore unpleasant realities without incurring unpleasant consequences. Bernie Madoff deceived thousands and thousands of people. How? It's not because he had an elaborate scheme or fancy tricks. It was actually the simplest of scams. People trusted him. They trusted his reputation. They trusted him because he was relatable. They trusted him because he appealed to their greed. And they trusted him even when he was repeatedly caught with outright lies. Because they felt they could ignore unpleasant realities without incurring unpleasant consequences. And here's why I wanted to start this morning by sharing about Bertie Madoff. It's because we too, just like the victims of Madoff's crimes, are vulnerable to being deceived. I'm not talking about being lured into dodgy investment. I'm talking about in our Christian walk. I'm talking about in our walk along the path of following Jesus. We face many lures that would seek to entangle, ensnare, and deceive us. We face the lure of the world and all the things the world seems to offer to us. We face the lure of the flesh and everything that the, the, the body and the soul seems to desire for itself. And we face the lure of the devil who would seek to lead us astray and deceive us. But here's the thing. It's easy to believe that we can ignore these unpleasant realities without incurring unpleasant consequences. It's easy to believe that we can even ignore or even flirt with the world, with the flesh and with the devil and not be ensnared or deceived. And our passage this morning is a reminder to keep watch, to stay on our guard and to pay careful attention to our lives and to our doctrines. 
Just by way of context, uh, this letter is a letter of Paul writing to uh, a church or a small community in Colossae, a small community in the Lycus Valley of modern-day Turkey. It was planted by a local named Epaphras who had, through his preaching of the gospel, seen a small mismatched group of new disciples come together, united by Jesus and the message of the gospel. And Epaphras found himself describing to Paul in prison about this community which Paul had never even visited himself. How they had this great faith in Jesus and a great love for one another. But Paul had also learned from Epaphras that there was a new teaching taking root in Colossae. A teaching that was taking elements of Jewish teaching and of pagan teaching and Christian teaching and kind of combining them all together. And the message of this new teaching was this, Jesus plus, Jesus plus a whole bunch of different things. And Paul is writing this letter as a kind of vaccination. He sees the danger of what could infiltrate the church and he's writing this message to help the church to see that Christ alone is enough, is more than enough. And last week, Dave uh, preached so well on the walk of new life, the pattern of life that we're meant to have as Christians, how it's meant to be grounded in new birth. Uh, Verse 6, as it says, as you receive Christ the Lord, so walk in him. Uh, How it's meant to be dependent in verse 7, rooted and built up in him. How it's meant to be unchanging, established in the faith, just as you were taught. And how it's meant to be a thankful walk, abounding in thanksgiving. Well, this week... Paul continues his encouragement of the Colossians in their walk, helping them to see that it's a walk which we must also guard. We must also watch carefully. If you're taking notes at home, I've entitled this message, Watch Your Walk. And I have two points. It's actually kind of one point, really, and then this is kind of like a tack-on point at the end. So if you get nervous because like, we're almost out of time and I'm still on point one, don't worry. It's going to be brief at the end. So two points, one kind of plus half a point. Um, but one main take-home for us this morning, and that is that we would take great care to ensure our walk is only ever based on Christ. That's the one take-home, church, for this morning that we would take great care in our walk to ensure that our walk is only ever based on our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going. All right, point one, the enslaving doctrines of man. Why don't you read with me again verse 8 of our passage. Paul says this. He says this to us. This is God speaking to us. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See to it, says Paul. Watch out. Look out for. Beware of. Beware of what? That no one takes you captive. You know, this is a rare word. It's the only time this word occurs in the Bible. And the word means 
to gain control of someone by carrying them off as booty. Um, It's an image of someone being kidnapped and carried away from truth into the slavery of error. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever thought of teaching, false teaching, as carrying this sort of power? You know, I think we treat in our culture the idea of false teaching somewhat lightly. You know, it's not a big deal. I mean, we're all well-educated people. Surely we can pick it up. The image people uh, Paul uses is horrific, absolutely horrific. It's of the kidnap, kidnapping and enslavement of people, a thing that was widely prevalent in Paul's day. And Paul is saying, danger. This is the kind of danger you face. Notice he says, see to it. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. Paul is instructing this small group to take decisive action to ensure that they are not captivated by this kind of teaching. I mean, have you ever thought of false teaching as carrying the power to take you as a captive? You know, we, we all know people who have walked away from Christ and stepped into error. You just have to be following Christ for long enough. But it's so easy to think in a culture like ours that is superficially high-achieving, successful, well-educated, that it might happen to others, but it wouldn't happen to me. But there were people just like us in this small church in Colossae, rich and successful, well-educated, people like Philemon and Nympha. And Paul is saying to them all, and to us, be careful. Be on your guard. Watch out. Watch out for what? Verse 8, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. You know, I think we think of this word philosophy and we think it kind of really narrowly like uh, academic and really, really intellectual, like wrestling with questions that kind of seem a little bit pointless to us, like how do I know I'm not a butterfly dreaming of being a man or something like that. Um, But that's not what this word actually means in Paul's day. In Paul's day, it was a really broad term and so possibly better translated as simply a way of thinking. And so Paul is saying, watch out for ways of thinking that are empty and deceitful. They're empty. They have no intellectual or moral or spiritual value at all. And deceitful. They're dishonest. They trick you. They fool you. They're deceptive. Well, what are the qualities of these empty and deceitful ways of thinking that the Colossians were at risk of being ensnared by. And Paul actually gives us three. Three erroneous ways of thinking. Three empty and deceitful ways of thinking. Three ways of thinking that were being peddled by these false teachers. Three ways of thinking that are both incredibly dangerous and incredibly relevant to us right now. 
three types of false teaching that can lead our walk astray and that Paul wants the Colossians to be watchful for. And here's the first one. Watch out for ways of thinking that are based on culture. Read with me again verse 8. Paul says this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. According to human tradition. Literally, according to the tradition of men. These false teachers were promoting a teacher that was teaching that was not based on God's word, but the traditions of men. That is culture. These false teachers had been promoting an extensive list of extra biblical rules and regulations in order to experience a greater degree of closeness to God. Let me give you a sampling. Verse 16. Dietary regulations, religious festival and Sabbath observance. Verse 18, self-abasement or asceticism. That's literally the harsh treatment of the body through things like starving yourself or isolation or deprivation. The worship of angels and new spiritual experiences. Paul describes it later on in chapter 2 as this in verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism or self-abasement. That is severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping indulgence of the flesh. Paul says these look so good and religious and serious, but they're worthless. From a human perspective, they look so wise and and important and special, but they're a waste of time. You see, this idea of human tradition or the traditions of men immediately brings to mind the teaching of Jesus on this very topic. If you have your Bible, turn to uh, Mark chapter 7, uh, verse 1. I'm going to read you a a section that I think speaks so wonderfully uh, to our passage. Jesus says this. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with their hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the, to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. See, Jesus and his disciples were being criticized by the Pharisees for not following the traditions of their elders. wasn't talking about the content of the Bible. 
They were talking about their rabbinic teachings. And Jesus says, Isaiah was speaking about you when he talked about people who are acting like they're close to me, but the reality is they're far from me. You teach people your own rules, your own culture, as though it's mine. You even go a step further and you let your own rules override my rules and my teaching and my instruction. Powerful criticism by Jesus. You know, in one sense, we can see this in the church community where cultural norms become critical rules and markers of closeness to God. Where a style of parenting or schooling becomes a marker of closeness to God. Where preferences for healthcare or immunization or diets or practices like drinking or smoking, where different types of dress or clothing become a marker of closeness to God. In some ways, this is the case in Roman Catholicism, where the church is teaching both sacred is both sacred and infallible, where the word of God is formally both scripture and tradition of the church all at the same time. But we shouldn't be too quick to dismiss the Pharisees and false teachers. We too are susceptible for succumbing to a false doctrine any time we place culture above scripture. Here's a difficult question I want you to think about this morning. What do you do when the Bible seems to contradict your personal sense of what is right? Let me give you some examples where I believe we can be tempted to do just that. Firstly, when we read the Bible's teaching on money. We read passages of scripture like 1 Timothy 6.17 which says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. You know, we read passages like that in Scripture, but if you're anything like me, you can can be tempted to kind of feel something like, yeah, I know the Bible calls me to be generous, but... I'm going to keep 99% of what God has given me for myself. You know, friends, when we do that, we're taking the Sydney culture of greed and placing it above Scripture, a philosophy based on the teachings of men. Another example, when we read the Bible's teaching on gender, we read passages like, 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And we hear that passage and we think, yeah, that passage kind of feels pretty wrong and uncomfortable to me. It kind of sounds, on first reading, quite misogynistic. And so I'm just not going to think about it. Um, Surely it doesn't actually mean that. Surely there's another explanation, or maybe there's a mistake. I'm sure God would never say that. And so we take Sydney individualistic, egalitarian culture, and we place it above Scripture, a philosophy based on the teachings of men. Or when we read the Bible's teaching on community, like Hebrews 10, 
24, which says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we feel, yeah, I know we shouldn't stop meeting together, but the working week is really tough, and I love to travel on the weekends. Plus, I don't want my kids to miss all the wonderful school sport opportunities. And so we take Sydney consumer culture or Sydney child-centric culture and we place it above scripture, a philosophy based on the traditions of men. My point is this. Paul's message is, watch out. Be on your guard against. See to it that you're not taking captive. This way of thinking is dangerous. It can ensnare you. It can take you captive. Watch out for ways of thinking that are based on culture. But secondly, not just based on culture. Number two, watch out for ways of thinking that are based on worldliness. Paul says this again in verse 8 of our passage. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to, in our Bibles, the elemental spirits of the world. Literally, uh, in the original language, this passage says, according to the elements of the world. You see, the word here that is translated as elementary spirits literally just means the elements, like earth, water, air, fire, and I'm just so tempted at this point to say heart as well, which, you know, all you people up in the 90s, you'll get that reference as well. Go planet. Um, the w- reason why our Bible translates it as elementary spirits is that it's trying to get at the reality that in the ancient world, people worship the elements. They worship them. And Paul is saying these false teachers and their obsession with all the rules and regulations, with all this eating and drinking and self-abasement and self-deprivation to get close to God, they're just like the pagans worshipping the elements. Uh, Douglas Moo in his commentary puts it so helpfully when he says, the Colossian philosophy, by its preoccupation with rules and material things, was, in Paul's view, treating them like the pagans did, as if they were fundamental cosmic powers that needed to be placated. They were, in effect, putting them in the place of Christ and failing to recognize that believers had died to them with Christ. Point is, Paul's trying to say, watch out for these false teachers who promote a philosophy, a way of thinking that's so obsessed with the physical world through things like don't touch, don't eat, drink this or that, or deprive yourself of this or that, that it's just like pagan culture that worships the things of this world. But here's the truth. Most of us are probably not at risk of falling for a philosophy that worships the things of this world through obsession with non-biblical religious rites and rules. We're probably more likely, however, to be tempted just like the pagans were with flat-out worship of the world. And in the Bible, we call this love of this worship of things in the world, worldliness. C.J. Mahaney, I think, puts it so helpfully when he defines worldliness like this in his book on worldliness. He says, worldliness then is a love for this fallen world. It's loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. 
More specifically, it is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. It rejects God's rule and replaces it with our own, like creating our own Bibles. It expands our opinions above God's truth. It elevates our sinful desire for the things of this fallen world above God's commands and promises. You see, the physical elements of this world and the things that the world loves, its values, the things it cares about, they have this intoxicating power. And Paul is saying, watch out for any teaching, any way of thinking that places the things of this world as primary. And friends, this danger is real. This danger is so real that possibly someone standing right beside Paul as he pens this letter would succumb to it. And that man's name is Demas. You know, we read about Demas in Colossians chapter 4, verse 13. It says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. We read about him as well in the other letter Epaphras was likely carrying to Philemon, who was a member of the church, where it says in verse 23 and 24, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. Demas was a close friend and aide of Paul's. He was a fellow worker and worker in the gospel. And yet by the time we get to Paul's second letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, we read the following heartbreaking words. 2 Timothy 4.10 says this, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Love of the things of this world, worldliness, is something we must watch out for. But how would I know? How would I know if worldliness has captured my heart? And how do I know if a way of thinking that has the things of this world at the center has taken me hostage? I think, again, C.J. Mahaney says it so helpfully when he says the following. So what are you captivated by? Really, what do you think about most often? What images have the power to arouse your interest? It's probably whatever is coming to mind right now. And we must ask ourselves, what value does it have? Hear this. If you're more excited about the release of a new movie or video game than serving in the local church, if you're drawn to people more because of their physical attractiveness or personality than their character, if you're impressed by Hollywood stars or professional athletes regardless of their lack of integrity or morality, then you've been seduced by this fallen world. You see, the things of this world that stand opposed to God have a seductive power and any way of thinking that seems to, seeks to place them as central is dangerous. And Paul is saying, watch out. But not just that. Finally, the third thing he lists is to watch out for ways of thinking that are not centered on Christ. Paul says it again in verse 8. He says, 
See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, or according to the elements of the world, and not according to Christ. You know, this is the essence of every philosophy, every way of thinking that is dangerous and to be resisted. It's not founded on, it's not focused upon Christ. Now, Christ is the blazing center of God's great revelation to us in Scripture. It's that he sent his son who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived the perfect life that we could not live, who died and suffered and died on the cross in agony for our sins, who bore the wrath of God in full, who, who after being dead was buried for three days and has risen again in glory, a verdict of God's final judgment and a sign of things to come, the restoration and reconciliation of heaven and earth once again. And the simple means of receiving that gift, which is through repentance and faith. Read with me verses 9 through to 10. Paul says this. For in him, that is Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. See, Christ is God incarnate. He is God come as man for us. He's the new temple in which the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. The whole fullness of God. It's emphatic. Fullness alone would be enough, but Paul is searching for words. And so he says, the whole fullness of God dwells in him. Everything that there is to be known about God can be found in his incarnate body. He is the supreme supreme ruler over all things. Every president, every king, every false god, every nation, every spiritual power. And he's the key to discerning the presence of any false teaching. How do you know if you're succumbing to a teaching, a way of thinking, a philosophy that could enslave you and take you captive? Is it according to Christ? Is he at the blazing center? You know what? There's some teachings, there's some ways of thinking that are obviously not centered on Christ. Things like Buddhism or Jehovah's Witness faith or Hinduism. But others are more subtle. You know, it's possible to even be in a church that does preach Christ, just not at the center. Other concerns, even important concerns, have taken priority. Things like exegetical concerns, delving into the nitty-gritty details of scripture and historical archaeological speculation. Things like social concerns, care for the poor and justice for the oppressed, refugees and the downtrodden. Things like ministry concerns, programs and numbers and slick presentations. Things like governance concerns, councils and meetings and the representation of different voices on different boards. And Paul's message is, see that no one takes you captive. These individual concerns may all be important, but if Christ and him crucified is not at the blazing center, danger. You're at risk. Watch out. You see, all 
man-made religion, all religion that is not centered on Christ, ultimately enslaves you. Because ultimately, all religion not centered on Christ teaches salvation by works. The message is, you need to do X, Y, and Z to get close to God. Even if you're a secular person and don't believe in God, this whole idea that you find purpose and meaning in life by what you do means you're enslaved to the things that you do. They control you. They own you. You must obey them. But Christ sets you free. You can be close to God. You can find meaning and purpose in life, not by what you do, but by what has been done for you at the cross. And that is the only way to be free. Well, that's point number one. The enslaving doctrines of man. Ways of thinking based on culture. Ways of thinking based on worldliness. And ways of thinking not based on Christ. Finally, point number two. Our final point. The watchful walk. I wanted to end our time together this morning with some brief thoughts from this passage about how to ensure that we're watchful in our walk. And I've got four simple points that come straight from our passage this morning. Point number one is simply to admit that you're vulnerable. Verse 8, Paul says this, See to it that no one takes you captive. See to it, says Paul. Why do we need to see to it? Well, we need to see to it because we're vulnerable. No one is above this. And this passage is a call to arms. It's a call to be vigilant. It's to take precaution lest we fall. And we can't unless we're willing to admit that we're at risk. Not just point one, admit you're vulnerable. Point two, regularly soak in scripture. Verse 8 again says the following. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, or according to the elements of the world, and not according to Christ. But here's the question. How will you be able to identify what is according, not according to human tradition? What are the elements and what is not according to Christ? How will you be able to discern? And the answer is, the only way is through this word. We need to soak ourselves in this word to allow it to fill our heart and our mind and our soul to help us to discern. I wonder if you're struggling this morning with spending regular time in the word of God. Maybe you're struggling just to do it. Maybe you're struggling to just even see the benefit of it. It's not speaking to you, it's helping you. I just want to, one... Thank you for admitting that's where you're at. But two, I just want to encourage you, reach out to someone. Maybe you want to share it with people in your group. Maybe you want to ask someone to disciple you in this. We've got a discipleship resource online at our website filled with recommended books that us as a pastoral team have read and highly recommend to you to do it. And I just encourage you, get online. Find a book or a friend who can sit with you and help you get stuck into the Word of God and you will reap rich fruit from it. And one of those will be to help you to guard your walk. Thirdly, 
Pursue community. Again, verses 9 and 10 in our passage this morning. It says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head. The beautiful picture in Scripture is that Christ is the head of a body of which we're a part. Now, how will you be able to identify what is according to human wisdom? Well, sometimes it's through being part of a body, brothers and sisters who see things more rightly. See, Christ is the new temple. He's the head of a body that we're joined to. And when we try to break away from the body, we're vulnerable. You know, one of the things the Bible describes us as being like in the scriptures is like sheep with a shepherd. But if a sheep is by itself in the wilderness, will it be safe at night? I'll tell you what, it won't be. There are wolves in the wilderness that would seek to harm and destroy. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says this. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Friends, we need one another. And so would we walk in a watchful way? We need to be joined to a body. We need to be together. We need the insight, the wisdom, the love of others to help us not to fall for traps we can't see. But fourthly, not just... Admit you're vulnerable, not just soak yourself in scriptures, not just be together in community, but fourthly, remind yourself each and every day of how glorious Christ is. Do you know what I think is at the heart of so much of our temptation when we're faced with false ways of thinking? It's we begin to believe it's offering us something that is better than Christ. We begin to listen to our culture or pursue things of this world or major on the minors because we think that will offer us something better. And what begins to take place is we find ourselves entrapped by those things, taken off course by those things. But here's the glorious truth of our passage this morning. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Every aspect of God's fullness is found in Christ. And we are in him. We are joined to him. The humble son of God who came to die in our place the king of glory for whom we are joined to as his precious children, as part of his body, as part of his holy temple. And so we need to regularly remind ourselves of how glorious he is. Well, over the decades, thousands of people were swindled by Bernie Madoff of billions and billions of dollars. Why? Because they began to believe that they could ignore unpleasant realities without incurring unpleasant consequences. Similarly, as Christians, we face the temptation to ignore the unpleasant reality of many false ways of thinking 
that have the power to enslave us. Ways of thinking based on culture. Ways of thinking based on worldliness. Ways of thinking not based on Christ. And so Paul has sought to remind us today that we ignore these at our own peril. We must take great care. Friends, would we take great care to ensure our walk is only ever based on Christ? Would you pray with me? Lord God, this morning we want to thank you for your word, a word that is powerful, a word that speaks straight to the heart, and a word that is filled with glorious hope. Lord, even as I'm sharing this morning, I'm just mindful of many ways in which I'm tempted to believe things that are false, that could lure me away. And I know for many of us, even at home, we we face a similar temptation as well. So we want to thank you this morning for your wise and helpful warning to take check to take stock of whether we've been placing you at the center and to guard our hearts and minds and walks against being led astray by anything but you and Lord freshly we can see this morning the craziness of seeking anything but you because you are so amazing you are so glorious And you gave it all for us when you hung on that precious cross. Lord, help us to major on you. Help us to stand on you. Help us to walk our walk watchfully, basing it only ever on you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.